0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: Apple finds some financial apps to keep investors happy until the new iPhone comes out. Can the mainstream media maintain its impressive growth in readers and viewers since the U.S. presidential election? All prices have recovered from their slump last year, but is that enough to keep the oil companies that drill for it sweet? And the retail industry is in the toilet. Does Coaches Turnaround offer a roadmap for others? These are the stories we'll be digging into on this week's edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and I'm here with my colleague Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen.
2: Hello. Apple reported quarterly earnings this week, and we found out that iPhone sales dipped, which you would think would be a problem. However, there's a lot that investors can still hang on to for Apple. We have Rob Siren joining us here from our New York newsroom. Welcome, Rob. How are you doing? So why don't you tell us a little bit about why this isn't such a big problem? I mean, I know that investors are focused on iPhone sales. Um, it's their most profitable product, is that correct? Mm -hmm. And most successful product, I think it's fair to say. Why hasn't there been a lot of panic?
3: Well, there are three reasons, really. So, the number of iPhones sold hasn't, uh, as you said, it decreased. But Apple's ring more money out of each iPhone they sell. Sale of services, for instance, that's things like um, when people go download an app, they give a chunk of the money to Apple. And that number's going up. That number's going up. Uh, going at, eight, eight, at 18% per year, it's about 13% of revenue right now. So that revenue will keep on going up. And the other thing is there's also, of course, excitement because um, investors know that Apple's going to unveil a new phone uh, probably in September. Um, when they do, it's the 10th anniversary, and everyone seems to think, um, and, and the supply chain uh, seems to indicate that it's going to be a big advance on previous phones, so they're going to sell a lot of phones. And the third reason is just the stock is relatively cheap. It still trades at a discount to the S&P 500 based on uh, estimated earnings. And with Apple giving a lot of cash back to investors, they promised an additional $50 billion, uh, yesterday. Uh, that seems like sufficient to keep investors in the stock.
2: And is that in a dividend buyback, everything, or did they say?
3: It's both. It's uh, dividend and buyback.
2: So what's their cash? How much is, uh, cash do they have on hand now? It's an extraordinary amount.
3: It, it's an extraordinary amount. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's over $250 billion. Uh, they've got a lot of debt, but it's it's uh, the the net cash component still keeps on rising. Much of
1: that is abroad, right? So I mean, one of the other reasons for the stock going up over the past few months is, obviously, I suppose, Donald Trump winning the election and talking about, you know, a holiday on the top rate of tax on repatriation or something
3: like that. Yeah. So Apple, they said in the call that they have 93% of their cash is held overseas. And that's because, you know, if they, if they bring it back to the United States, they get penalized. If there's a tax holiday, that means a lot of that can come back and they can pay it out to investors, which you can assume they will, um, in the form of more buybacks, more dividends.
2: And do you think they'll do anything beyond that? I mean, because they're sitting on such a hoard of cash, there's always... You know, speculation around Apple that they're going to go off and do some transformational deal. I, I mean,
3: really doubt it. I mean, it seems like I've been covering them a long time, and every year there's a new story about the tech company they're going to buy. Um, you know, it's Netflix, it's Tesla, it's, you know, you can, you can, every year there's something more. And they they really don't ever do transformative acquisitions. They do about a dozen or more small deals per year. Usually they just want a small uh, additional feature or they want a couple of people to join their team. So it would really go against history and kind of their culture for them to do a big deal.
1: Now, CEO Tim Cook said on uh, the call to investors that the re- it was leaks about the 10th anniversary phone that led to sales declines of the iPhone in the in, the, in the last quarter. Call me skeptical, but I'm pretty sure the quarter or two before the new iPhone coming out, there's always a decline or there's often a decline in sales.
3: Yeah, that, that, I would take that with a big Dose of skepticism. Uh, the problem really seems to be in China. There are three manufacturers there that have gained a lot of share um, in market, and that's cutting into Apple sales. Apple, for instance, it used to be about two years ago the sales, in China were about twenty nine percent of all sales. I think the figures below twenty percent now. So there's obviously been some problems there, and Apple can talk up. You know the the prospects of india which but then again everyone else is going to india too so it right. seems like they're so it could, a be, could be
1: a similar picture they'll they'll grow quickly and then um others will come along and, and take yeah. some of the market share exactly yeah right rob thanks for coming on the show always great to hear an update about apple you're welcome so let's talk about the media industry it may sound like it's art eating itself us in the media business talking about our own industry but a lot's been happening recently, not the least of which is that the New York Times and Time Warner, which owns CNN, have produced this week very good earnings on the back of President Trump's election. Jen, you are our media expert. Let us know what's going on. Let's start off with uh, how well subscriber numbers are growing at the New York Times and what it means and what it doesn't mean.
2: All right. So they had a record quarter with digital news subscriptions uh, since they launched their pay model in 2011. And the growth was like more than 300,000 subscriptions, which is extraordinary. They now have about a little over 2 million digital only subscriptions. So basically since the election, New York Times, other news outlets, The Washington Post, The Economist, Vanity Fair, you name it. ProPublica, the the not-for-profit one. Everyone is seeing, for the most part, a an uplift in subscription revenues or readership. And, you know, partially that's because there's just hunger for news now that Trump is the president. And, you know, it also, in some ways, seems to be helping. Trump is like very specifically taunting certain news organizations. New York yeah. Times is one of them, and so is CNN.
1: Yes, yeah, so New York Times he calls failing and CNN he calls fake. Is yeah, that
2: right? he's constantly needling them on Twitter, you know, in press conferences, Recently, they, the, the administration tried to put an ad on CNN, like calling um, CNN and other news outlets fake news at the end of the ad. I mean, it's just it's incredible what's going on. But despite all of that, people are, are saying, OK, listen, we want to read. We want to figure out what's going on in the world. And so we're going to buy subscriptions.
1: And this, if, if, the more subscriptions, the more ad sales will go up, I'm sure. So this ought to be really good news for earnings and for a company like New York Times, which just a few years ago was on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, and other companies did go under, this must be fantastic news for them. They must be sitting there thinking, we are going to reap this for as long as this guy's in office.
2: As, as with everything, there, there's some good news and bad news with it. So their subscription revenue is, is doing quite well. What's not doing well is their advertising revenue. Their print ad revenue fell so much that even like the... Big gains that they had in digital ad revenue—it couldn't offset it. This is a problem, partially because they have to make up that revenue. That it's it's basically the backbone of the newspaper industry, um, and they're they're making strides with subscription revenue. But the problem is they're not going to be hitting records every quarter, um, even if Trump continues tweeting at the New York Times or you know. Calling the media the enemy of the people. Or you whatever think there's a degree
1: think. of Trump fatigue that's going to set in?
2: Well, I don't even think it's. I mean, like, who knows? I mean, <laughs> let's be honest. Like, but what it, it gets harder and harder to grow um, from a larger base. And and yes, I do think that after a point, that there's going to be some fatigue, and that you yeah. you've, you've reached your limits of. There's also. I mean, there
1: also th- this week there was um, outrage and talk on on some media outlets of people phoning up to cancel their subscriptions and being on hold forever because lots of others were because the new york times has hired someone as an opinion columnist who is a climate change denier
2: yeah and th- this is interesting um so the new york times hired uh, pulitzer prize winning columnist uh brett stevens who was at the wall street journal for a very long time um people are freaking out about this and you know it remains to be seen like how much it's really put a dent in their subscriptions. We don't know. This just happened, and they just reported their first quarter earnings. So, um, But what it does show you is that the Times is trying to cultivate different viewpoints, and that's a good business decision.
1: But well, you think that's a good thing? Surely what you want in this world of bifurcated media, where, where everyone's basically ran, uh, ranged up against each other on opinion, is to have your media outlet just reflect your own views. Why would you want to have more than that?
2: Well... Here's the thing, no matter what you think about Brett Stevens, the problem with the New York Times has is that they're trying to appeal to the most amount of people as they possibly can. They're trying to be the paper of record for the United States and they're also trying to be a global brand. They're trying to increase global subscriptions. It's very difficult to do that if you go off and say, We're a leftist liberal newspaper. Their best way of getting more subscribers is to, to kinda of have the centrist, you know, take on things and um, so I think in in some ways from a business perspective it's good that they that they are trying to broaden out their viewpoints.
1: Okay Jen thanks for talking through that that has been fantastic. Cast your mind back to 2010 when that BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico every day basically we were looking at a camera showing oil gushing out into the sea seemingly never ending. Well, we're now seven years later and BP at least seemed finally to be putting the worst of the crisis behind it. Joining us to talk about BP and other oil companies and their earnings of the past few days, we have Lauren Silver on the line from Dallas. Hi, Lauren. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. Thank you. How are you?
1: Very well, thanks. So let's look at BP first very quickly. I know um, obviously we're, we're channeling our colleague Andy Critchlow here. Um, but basically, the, the line here is that, okay, things aren't necessarily stellar. They're still paying out a fair whack on fines and compensation and whatever. But BP's finally getting his acting gear, helped, of course, by the oil price going up. Just talk us, talk us through quickly you know, how BP is managing seven years after this awful spill.
0: Uh, I'd say they're doing pretty well, but I'm not sure it's really anything that they in particular have done. A lot of the Oil companies. I mean, all the oil companies have benefited um, significantly over the past six to nine months because oil prices have rebounded, and, and BP certainly been no exception to that.
1: Okay, so I mean. What we're looking for here, I suppose, is, you know, if you're a shareholder, you think, oh, I'm still paying this money. Out. It's a bit like Citigroup in the banking sector. You know, if it weren't for all those pesky losses from that mess we made, we'd be doing just fine. I mean, is, is that do you think that's a fair enough comment on BP now? Is BP really going to be putting this 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 crisis behind it?
0: Well, the tricky thing with the oil companies is um, there are things that are within their control and things that are not within their control. You know, obviously, oil spill, you would say, okay, that's within their control. They should have been able to, to prevent something like that from happening. But as we've seen over the history of lots of these oil companies, there are mishaps and problems that happen. And it's just a matter of when and where and who's next. So that's the first problem with getting overly excited about BP or anybody else for that matter. I think the second issue is that all of these companies are doing well because of the oil price, which, again, is sort of partly in their control and then partly not. They're oil companies, and they get paid for drilling and pulling oil out of the ground and selling it. Um, So they obviously have an incentive to increase supply and be able to sell it. At the same time, the more they increase supply, the more the oil price gets depressed and the harder it is for them to make money. So it's just the sort of circular pattern of a commodity that makes it very difficult for anyone to get too excited about any oil company, especially given the sort of broader landscape of what has happened to supply in oil over the last couple of years. So, Lauren, what what do prices look like now?
2: I mean, they were really in, in the tank, so to speak, a couple of years ago. Give me your your estimation of what's happening with the prices.
0: Oil prices have been hovering around $50 a barrel, and most people seem to think that they've reached some sort of equilibrium there. What happened was, you know, there were these huge amounts of resources that were discovered in the Permian Basin uh, here in Texas. And um and then they discovered, oh, you know what? If we drill another way, there's even even more oil than we originally thought. Um, And these discoveries and new technologies have really increased the amount of supply in the entire market um, over the past year or so, and and that's where you saw the sort of oil prices falling, falling, and falling. And then you know OPEC made these decisions to sort of cut its supply, and then you have you know all the other producers that are you know publicly traded companies that obviously can't or, or don't make those decisions, and so you have this balancing effect in the market. That being said, as technologies improve, it's possible that companies are able to drill faster and drill more and there's more downside pressure on the oil price. What's hard to imagine is that for whatever reason, the oil that has been discovered will somehow not be able to be pulled out of the ground and not used and for that reason the price would go up. So it's really only pressure on the oil price in one way.
1: Okay I mean I think you know when you were looking at Exxon and Chevron earnings last week I think that's where you came up with your thesis you just elucidated earlier about um you know they're almost in the sweet spot like they're looking good but you know they're always um circular and cyclical elements that can come to play but I think you mentioned there that the the one thing to watch out for there on the oil prices it it it, it Quickly dip below its 200 day moving average and that that gave people a degree of pause about you know whether this this equilibrium you mentioned earlier really is, is long term sustainable i mean how how likely is it that you think that the oil price will dip down for a prolonged period again
0: I, if look if I were an oil investor I'd be very nervous about it actually um, I think that if you're weighing the probabilities of which way it's going to go, there are a lot more pressures for it to fall. You know That being said, it's not impossible for the oil companies to make money at a lower price. They're becoming more efficient. They're cutting their costs, too. And so if oil prices do fall further, then some might be able to still make money. Um, but what you're seeing right now in most of the companies is they've really hit this sweet spot where oil prices are high enough that they can drill and get oil out of the ground. At the same time, their own costs um, have not risen substantially um, as they do at later parts in the cycle. Um, and so they're able to really boost their bottom line as a result.
1: And uh, President Donald Trump, of course, is, uh, if I may display my colors, uh, starting his war on clean air and clean water. So that's got to be great news for these companies, right? They can go and they can go and drill all over the place.
0: They can i mean it 's funny because when people talk about the ability to drill and where they want to be right now they want to be in the u s and it 's amazing because they are you know saying that there 's absolutely no barriers to entry. You get land and you have a you know you have the ability to drill you have a well you 're good to go um, you go to some other regions in the world, and it 's certainly not that easy there 's lots of negotiating with the government and you know there 's lots of hoops to jump through. Um, So, you know, Texas, if you're a wildcatter, I mean, it's the best place in the world to be right now.
1: So why are you working for us? Shouldn't you be going out and putting a a, a drill in your backyard?
0: (laughs) Hey, there might be one there sometime soon.
1: Right, Lauren, great to speak to you. Thanks for coming on the show.
0: Thank you very much.
1: More than 60,000 jobs disappeared from the U.S. retail industry in February and March this year alone. Stores are closing, malls are dying as more people do more shopping online. But e-retailers like Amazon have their own problems too, not least the cost of delivering goods and picking up those that get sent back. Let's start off with some good news though. Luxury handbag maker Coach this week delivered pretty good earnings. Uh, Kate DeGue, you uh, you were watching this earlier this week. And uh, you're saying, okay, they've done a good turnaround, but actually they might be getting a bit distracted. Talk us just through first, if you would, uh, what's been happening with Coach.
4: Sure. So Coach in 2014 hired a new CEO and started a turnaround process after having several years of declining sales. And what they were trying to do was pull more handbags off the shelf. They had kind of flooded the market and increased sort of the exclusivity of their, of their brand again. And it's been working. They've seen same-store sales growth for the three quarters preceding this one. And in the past, um, in, the, in this last quarter, their profit grew 9%, which sent their shares up. Uh, so they're one of the few luxury retailers in the United States that's really doing well at the moment.
1: So what they've done, I suppose, is they, they have, from what you're saying, is that they, they've they made it a bit more exclusive by taking a product off the shelf so it looks like there's less there to buy. It makes it more demand. And also, I think they've been cutting um, discounts as well. And cutting discounts, so they got in exactly. This, uh, we've got too much stuff. Our sales are going down. We'll discount. So sales keep going down, and they're getting this death spiral. Jen, you cover retail as well. Uh, would you say you, you've seen any examples of this across other Parts of the industry where companies have managed to turn things around? Or I, mean, you, I know you concentrate a lot on some of the companies that have been in trouble as well.
2: Yeah, so mostly they're in trouble. <laughs> so there's just been this incredible reckoning, I think, with retail right now. And it's all across the board. It's not just Macy's, which are it's like a mid-level department store. They're in a world of hurt right now. Ralph Lauren, which is luxury good maker, they're having problems. So basically what's happening is a lot of people are shopping online, and that's true. But I think a lot of people are also spending their money elsewhere. And that includes going on trips or, you know, things that have quote unquote experiences. And so all of these things are kind of conspiring against retail at the moment. And, you know, retail overexpanded too. I mean, they're like a bazillion Macy's and they have so much stuff, uh, you know, particularly in Macy's. It's just, I don't know if you've walked into one recently. I I I try to avoid it. It's an overwhelming experience. I Mm. mean, you just don't even know where to go or where to
1: yeah, I'm. I'm still a five-year-old boy remembering my sister spending two hours looking for shoes and then buying the first pair she looked at. I, I can't go near, yeah, near stores. So,
2: so I mean, that's how a lot of people are starting to feel, right? And so. Um, What what's interesting about Coach's strategy is that a lot of people are trying to do the same thing. Ralph Lauren, for example, is trying to cut back on discounting. They're trying to pull some of their product from, you know, the shelves of the department stores. They're trying to cut some of their real estate. They're trying to bring back an era of exclusivity as well. Macy's, on the other hand, you know, they're cutting a bunch of stores They are trying to play in the middle where they are doing kind of like this fast fashion-y kind of thing where they've introduced this new line that's going to appeal to younger people. And then they're also kind of going through their own inventory. Fast
1: fashion. What does that mean? So
2: fast fashion is like H&M and Zara and things where essentially you walk into the store and every two or three weeks there's a different product on the shelves. The lead time for retail is painfully long. I mean, it's sort of mind-boggling that buyers typically buy in the spring for the fall. Um so the lead time what they need is is just extraordinary. And so right now part of the game is trying to cut that lead time from, you know, when they develop a concept or, you know, think of a design to when it's actually on the shelf. Right,
1: so they're also trying to create more need as well. So if we can just get people into the stores to buy new stuff more frequently then surely our profit will go up. But look, there must be costs behind that as well, though, because you've got to keep developing new stuff.
2: Yeah, you have to keep developing. It's tricky because what, what happens is you have to, to look at your back end. Who are your suppliers? How quickly can you get things, you know, to the stores? Um, you know, so there's – it's not an – an easy to replicate uh, strategy for uh, for a lot of these places and
1: it's I mean, if, if costs are involved then I, I mean this is where mergers come in I would think and I know I mean, we'll talk about the e retailers and what they've been doing a bit later on but but I mean Kate look at going back to coach this is a company it's done really basically one deal in its history certainly under this new CEO that was two years ago but it's been linked to mm-hmm. so many companies recently and, and I, mean, I think your line on this is, look, let's not overplay our hand here. And, and, and the first deal they did was for Stuart Weitzman, the, the shoe company, a couple of years ago, really isn't the best example for everyone to look at and say, if they did that well, the others will go fine. I mean, talk us through that. What's, what is it that's, that's pushing Coach to look at all these different, these different names?
4: Sure. So as Jen said, the luxury market is contracting. Bain reported that in 2016, the overall market for luxury goods declined 1, which means that um, for a brand like Coach, if they're doing well, they're taking away market share from other from other brands. And so none of so they have been linked uh, to a couple other companies. They tried to buy Burberry. It was reported in 2016, and have been linked to both Jimmy Choo and Kate Spade this year.
1: It's not quite necessarily in their in their backyard, you know. Known for, I know hamburgers isn't all they do, mm-hmm. but they're getting, you know, looking at shoes, looking at various other elements that they could bring in. I mean, it's. It, it, I'm not going to say it sounds desperate. I don't know enough about the, the company to to, to to say, but if they're shopping around like this, it strikes me there might be a bit too much of a, a bad habit going on, or a, possibly a developing one, at least.
4: Yeah. So. It- it does really risk distraction. And that's what we've said about their turnaround strategy. You know, their shares have been have been going up for the past past few quarters. And they've shown, as we said, same store sales growth. But it's not it's not on firm territory yet.
1: But you know, explain why Stuart Weitzman isn't necessarily the the deal that everyone should look to as a good example for the other companies you say that uh, Coach has been linked to.
4: The market was slightly different in in 2015. And The companies that that coach is now looking to acquire don't at all have those kinds of numbers. The acquisition of Stuart Weitzman was quite easy. You know, it was a healthy, growing company, and... The brands that Coach is now looking to acquire just really don't have those kinds of kinds of numbers. So while Jimmy Choo has been returning money to investors, sales growth in 2015 was 7%, whereas in 2016 was down to 1.6%. Growth is slowing.
1: Let's move on then to, to the e-retailing side of things, because there is also quite interesting. We've seen a number of, of players go out and buy smaller companies recently, um, whether to get presents online or whether to uh, change what they do online. Um, And, Jen, you wrote a piece about Walmart and Amazon recently. Obviously, Walmart being a very big physical presence. Amazon, meanwhile, is trying to develop one, uh, which seems to go uh, against everything that, that we've just been talking about. So... Talk to us about, what, look at some of the e-retailers. What, what, why are they trying to go for physical locations? What does it tell us about the state of the industry if they're going that way?
2: So it, it says a couple of things. First, online sales represent, depending on how you calculate things, roughly about 15% of total retail. Um, and Amazon has a majority of that. So they're, they're, they've done extraordinarily well. But they're subsidizing you know, one of the main benefits of being a member of, of Amazon, which is the Prime, right? And their free two-day shipping. And and that subsidy is, they're basically burning more cash to, you know, basically keep people on, on the hook for this. Um, and those delivery costs are adding up. Uh, I think last year it was like uh, they burned about $7 billion. What could help them and what has Walmart has in its back pocket, so to speak, is this idea of clicking and picking up your own product. So you shop online and then you go to a Walmart and you pick up...
1: Yeah, Target does this as well. And actually, it's it's even got to the point where, you know, I had an Amazon... Um, package delivered and they couldn't get it to me. So they left it at the local florists. Yeah. So So there are a lot of little stores that are are, are, are making a little bit of money on the side here. Yeah,
2: It's called the last mile. And and that's where a majority of the costs come in. And that's where Amazon is burning a lot of their money. What Walmart has to its advantage is like 90% of the American population lives within maybe a 15-minute drive of a Walmart, which is an extraordinary thing when you think about it. And the other thing Walmart has is uh, they have groceries. And I think people tend to want to go to a store and buy groceries or, you know, they want it immediately. What Walmart is also doing is offering discounts so that if you click online, you can come and pick it up and you're going to get a better price for that. And I think Amazon realizes, hey, you know, we've got to look at this seriously um, because we've got to cut down these costs. We can't subsidize delivery, you know, until the end of eternity. We've got to figure out ways to get people to you know come in and do this themselves so short of buying a UPS or a FedEx which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense you know they're going to have to think of other ways and, and, and an actual retail outlet is one way to do it. So does this
1: mean that, that they're killing off their drone program they want to set up to deliver? I mean that, that strikes me as a particularly very individual way of delivering that would cost them even more money.
2: Well, I mean, I, the thing about Amazon is they're going to play in a whole bunch of different areas, right? So they're going to try and see what drones do. They're probably going to see what driverless cars do. They're probably going to set up – they're going to probably go after all the small real estate that is eventually going to come up on the market. In fact, Green Street Advisors had a really good number where there are like basically 800 department stores need to close to get to the levels of productivity – about 10 years ago. So that, that's an extraordinary number of, of stores. Um, and so the idea is that maybe Amazon could pick off some of that. Um, you know, it remains to be seen. Do they want to be in the real estate? Do they want to start owning these things? Are they going to do partnerships? Are they going to say, like your local florist, you know, can we use you as a drop point? But you still have to get it to that drop point. So, you know, that, that's, that's what they've got to figure out.
1: Well, there we go. When it comes to retail, everything. Comes right back to Amazon, it seems. Jen, thanks for that. Kate, thanks for coming on the show. Great to have you on again.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank my co-host and contributor, Jen Saber. I'd also like to thank our guests, Kate Degood, Lauren Silva, and Rob Siren And of course, our producers, Bethel Habti and Andrew D'Antonio. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. Please do share your opinions about our show. We'd love to hear them. One more thing, we'll be back next week, and we'd love you to listen in again. Thanks for joining us.